in our study of Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 6. Now, if you remember, uh, over the past couple of months, we've been looking at uh, primarily Jesus and his interaction uh, with the people, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, and particularly last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus and his interaction with his disciples and how they've been moving from place to place where they've been healing, they've been uh, crossing the sea to, to cast out demons, uh, teaching. More specifically, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus in interaction with his disciples, preparing them and instructing them to be sent out and to share the love of Jesus with other people. Uh, last week, we had a uh, seemingly interesting piece of scripture in the midst of all that with Jesus, uh, I mean, with John the Baptist's story of his beheading. And we looked at the fate of John the Baptist and we saw how, how God uses Holy Spirit convictions. Uh, coupled with godly courage to produce Christ-like character. And although Herod uh, liked John, uh, he, he enjoyed his teaching, uh, even listening to him speak, although knowing uh, John, he made a promise in front of all the people, as we looked at last week, that he would do whatever his um, Salome, uh, his Herodias' daughter, said. And so Jesus, uh, John the Baptist is beheaded uh, by Herod. Um, the opposite is true of John the Baptist, where Herod concluded in his head, although knowing what he wanted to do, he couldn't do it because of pride. Uh, John the Baptist, on the other hand, knew the truth of God, spoke the truth of God, and obeyed the truth of God. And that's what we looked at last week. That was the takeaway last week, that God's truth is this undeniable force inside of us, this loving conviction from the Holy Spirit. And then God also gives us the courage to follow through with that conviction, which develops in us. Christ-like character. Now this morning we continue in Mark and we actually pick up from two weeks ago when Jesus had sent the disciples out. They are now coming back to him and we also see the feeding of the 5,000. But before we go any further this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of the songs that we've sang. Thank you that we get to rehearse those truths through music and through um, talents that you've given the praise team here. God, this morning we now come to your word and we pray that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you would not only give us information, but that you would give us an understanding of what it means for transformation and obedience to that truth. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or beside you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is this, What is it that you have been given to give? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read verses 30 through 44 in this familiar passage and story of Jesus and his disciples. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
and he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, Jesus, answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of broken pieces, and also of the fish there were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Remember before the story of John the Baptist, we saw Jesus preparing and instructing his disciples in this idea of, of going out to share the good news of Jesus and sharing the truth of Jesus and knowing what to look for and how to think. And now we pick up the story where the disciples are returning from being sent out. Now think about it just for a second about this return. What a fun time that would have been to hear the stories of how they shared, who, they, who accepted, who rejected, where they went, who they stayed with, the dusting off of their feet of some people, miracles, the questions, maybe even how they got along with each other. Maybe how they didn't get along with each other. Stories of run-ins with the Pharisees, what they said. It, it almost reminds me a little bit of what a Sunday morning could look like. That we go out at the end of a Sunday morning, we go out and we are sharing and serving Jesus. And then Sunday mornings, we come back and we say, how'd your week go? And we tell stories and interactions of people. After all the reporting, notice Jesus' response in verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. This verse, actually this command to come away by yourselves from Jesus, does not appear in any other Gospels in this particular se uh, section. And I find it interesting that after Jesus hears their stories, hears about what they've taught, hears about what they've done, he says to them, come away and rest. Because his primary concern, remember, is not the ministry but the people. Because he cares more for the disciples than he does for the disciples' work. Even Jesus, in his human nature, pulled away and rested. We saw that in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And because he's acquainted, he knows a little bit about what the disciples have gone through. He says, come and rest. Serving Jesus can be hard and tiring. And Jesus knows it full well. And so he says, come away and rest. The second sentence is this, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not have time to eat. Keep that in mind. They didn't have time to eat. Jesus had provided rest for these busy guys that had been out serving him. Verse 32, they went away to a, in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. 
Uh, the principle here that I want to pick up before we get into the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus invites, gives permission, commands rest. Now notice in verse 33 that the people saw them going and many recognized them. Now, now think about this just for a second. How did they recognize them? Because they had been out with them. Now think about the numbers just for a second. How many disciples? Twelve. How many pairs? Y'all are good at math, just to let you know. How many people? Five thousand men. Think of the impact of their going out. All these people notice the disciples. 5,000 men, probably close to 10,000 people, noticed the work of these six pairs of people. It's pretty impressive. Now the disciples are going to be with Jesus, and they're going to rest. And they look up and they see a crowd pursuing them and wanting them, wanting what they had. Now let me just ask you a question. What are you like when you're tired? You've been working, you're ready to rest, and you see the potential of even more work ahead. Maybe a question is this, what, what are you like when your rest is interrupted? Anybody wake up from a nap when they didn't get their nap out? You ever heard that phrase? Are you just happy? Or are you a little crabby? A little crabby, right? Most of us in this situation would either want to hide from the crowd or we'd be a little, a little crabby about the crowd. We, we'd just been with the crowd. And we need a little rest from the crowd. We go to this secluded place and we look up and there's the crowd. Now watch Jesus' perspective of the people. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them. Because they were to, them, to him like sheep without a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. How does Jesus react to the interruption of his rest? He shows compassion. He sees the people like sheep without a shepherd. Now to understand what this means, what it would have meant to the disciples, we can read through other passages of scripture to understand the relationship between shepherd and sheep. 1 Kings twenty two seventeen. I saw Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd, and the Lord said, they have no master. Did you know that a sheep is the most dependent animal? Without someone to guide it, a sheep wanders, gets lost, gets hurt, becomes food for wolves. In fact, without someone to graze it, a sheep starves. Alexander Strzok in his book, Elder, Biblical Eldership, says this, The biblical image of a sheep, a shepherd caring for his flock, standing long hours, ensuring its safety, leading it to fresh pasture and clear water, carrying the weak, seeking the lost, healing the wounded and sick, is precious. The whole image of the Palestinian shepherd is characterized by intimacy, tenderness, concern, skill, hard work, suffering, and love. 
It is as former London Bible College professor Derek Tidball remarks in his book, Skillful Shepherds, a subtle blend of authority and care and as much toughness and as tenderness, as much courage as comfort. Jesus, our shepherd, sees us as dependent sheep. That's how he saw the people. And so the shepherd-sheep metaphor, this analogy, is rich. In fact, it's what David wrote about in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's how Jesus sees the people. That's how he sees you and me. A shepherd is to protect, feed, lead, and care for the flock's practical needs. Jesus looked at these people as sheep without a shepherd. Who had been their shepherd? The Pharisees. And Jesus recognizes that the Pharisees are not leading them to nutrition. One author, commentator, said this, The minds of the would-be guides or shepherds are too occupied with legalistic niceties about Sabbath restrictions, fasts, phylacteries, tassels, etc., to be concerned about their souls. So Jesus looks at the people and says they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, in case you ever uh, are in a Bible trivia situation, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. They all give the same account, each adding different details that another account may leave out. Now, to give some perspective about this account, there are about 5,000 men probably 10,000 people, maybe even more with children, all wanting the attention of 12, 13 men. Can you picture them on the hillside? Now, it was hard for me to picture 10,000 people on a hillside. So I had to put it in my terms and look like maybe like the quarter of a football stadium, the number of people. Now, I want us to think about the overall point of this miracle, the backdrop of this miracle, and it's this. God takes what you have been given, no matter how small it may seem to you, and multiplies it to create miracles for others. I'm going to be looking at this passage in John chapter 6 also, so if you have your Bible, you may want to look at it there too. The first thing I want us to look at is this. Never evaluate a difficult situation in light of your own resources. There's a note that a friend gave me probably 10 years ago. It's a post-it note on on the little cubby area of my office, and it says this. Vision beyond resources. In other words, it's a reminder to me that what I think I have What I don't have or what I have lost does not dictate what God can do. What I think I have or what I don't have or what I think I have lost does not dictate what God can still do. 
As the disciples' day was fading away, it was getting dark, they said to Jesus, This place is desolate. Now this word desolate means gloomy, depressing, abandoned. And it is already quite late, and they send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for them to eat. Now as you look at the response of the disciples, and you go through this first point, you ask the Lord maybe to reveal some similarities that the disciples had that maybe you have. And the first response is this, let's just get rid of them. Let's, let's just get rid of them. In fact, it says, send them away. Now, at first glance, it looks like they maybe have saying, send them away so they'll have time to get home, so it won't get late, so they can see where they're going. We live in a culture where we do the same thing. We want to just send the problem away, push it down the road, give it to somebody else. If we have our choice, we would rather remove problems, situations, and circumstances rather than ask the Lord to teach us, grow us, and learn from them. On the surface, this uh, uh, request appeared to be a request based on the disciples' compassion to the crowd. However, it wasn't a response based in faith. Their response was send them away because we don't have what it takes to fix it. They were still looking for solutions based on their own assets, on what they could do. John uh, 6, verse 6, when, when Philip is part of this scenario, he even starts using some calculations. He says, Jesus, you know, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one of us to have a bite. Jesus, it just doesn't add up. Send them away. Philip did not realize that it was not about the works, but grace, that it was not about the labor, but the favor of God. He didn't recognize the one who was asking, how many loaves do you have? None of them piped up and said, Jesus, you can take care of this. None of them responded in faith. Philip was so sure of what could not be done that he lost sight of what could be done. In other words, he had no vision beyond his own resources of what could be done. And I can't help, my, help myself and scratch my head and think, how could you respond that way? Do you not know who's with you? It's almost as if Philip said, you know, I know that you're Jesus who I heard about raised the daughter of Jairus, who restored the health of a woman who was sick for 18 years. But I think the feeding of the 5,000 is a bit too big for you, Jesus. I'm not sure you can do anything at this point. Does Philip's reaction in any way remind you of yourself? Where we've seen God's work in other people's lives, we've seen him work in our lives, but we don't let that knowledge and experience dictate the next experience. We can forget. Now, Andrew had a different approach. Andrew, in John's account of the story, sees the large crowd, and he sees what he has. He takes inventory. See what or who is available for God to use. After taking inventory, though, Andrew 
literally threw up his hands and said the same thing Philip did, that we just don't have enough. There's just simply not enough. Now, I love the question that Jesus asked Philip in John chapter 6, verse 6. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, notice that he didn't ask how they were to buy bread, because remember, they weren't to take any money with them. And he didn't ask them how much food it would take. He asked them, where? Where are you going to turn in the midst of this problem? He was asking to test them. John 6, 6. He was saying, to, saying this to test him, for he himself, Jesus, knew what he was intending to do. Remember what David's question was in Psalm 121? I lift my eyes to the mountains. From where, from where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And not one of the disciples piped up and said, our help is going to come from you, Jesus. You can do it. They had Jesus with them. And so do we. Some of us can get into the habit of thinking these two things. Let's just get rid of the problem. And let's see what we have in light of our problem and realize we just don't have enough to take care of it. We need not focus on what we think we will add up to or what we don't have or the limitations. Try to calculate based on our own resources. We need to remind each other who is with us that Jesus knows what he is intending to do. That we can trust him. Which leads me to the next point. Jesus will only transform what is transferred to him. Verse 38, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he took the loaves and the two fish. John's account of this story, it says that there was a lad there who had five barley loaves and two fish. The boy had a lunch. Jesus intentionally used a small amount of food to authenticate this miracle. Remember, it's not about our ability, but our availability. It's about releasing what we have to God. God is big even if our resources are not. Now, let me just ask a question for a second. I think this is kind of a, it's got a little bit of humor to it, to me. Maybe it's just me. Do you think Jesus really expected the boy to have enough to feed the crowd? Do you think Jesus expects you and I to solve all of our problems? Of course not. Although we want to be our own God, we do not have the resources to fulfill that desire. That's why we need God. Jesus only wanted the boy to transfer the little bit of food in his hands and leave the rest to the miracle worker. Do you remember Jesus? How he was impressed with people who gave their resources that were limited. Do you remember when they're in the synagogue? And the lady comes up and she gives 
one little mite. And what does Jesus say? She's given more than all the others. Because she had transferred her mite to be used by Jesus. That's what JP said earlier about the finances here at Grace. We, we transfer our, our giving to Jesus and let him do with it what he wants to do with it, as he intended. So what the boy transferred to Jesus was what was transformed by Jesus. It may be small in quantity, it may be poor in quality. But if you transfer whatever you had to Jesus, it will be transformed by him. One author said this way, You can have little, and it will remain little, as long as you hold on to it. It reminded me of the story of the lady and Elijah in 1 Kings 17. She surrendered her little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, just enough for a day's worth, and it never gave out. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 4? The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Think about it. What if the boy didn't transfer his lunch to Jesus' hands? Or what if the woman didn't transfer the flour and oil into the hands of God? And what if Moses didn't transfer the staff into the hands of God? Whatever was not transferred would never have been transformed. And the same is true of us. When we hold on, either in our thoughts or on our tangible things, our resources, we miss out on the miracle God desires to do in our lives. This is not a prosperity gospel that we give and so we can receive. But this is a principle that what is transferred to Jesus will be transformed. It's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. Behold, all things become new. God will not transform what has not been transferred. And that applies in a lot of different areas. In our marriages. If we don't transfer our marriages to the lordship of Jesus, it will not be transformed. Our finances, our job, our work, our attitude, our ministries, our plans, on and on and on, what we have been given is to be transferred to Jesus so it will be transformed. One of the ways we shared with teenagers over the years about accepting Christ is this principle. It's the stool principle, and you're free to steal this and use it. That we take everything we know about ourselves, everything, our thoughts, our past, everything that we know about ourselves, and we transfer it and trust Jesus to hold it. That we believe that everything that makes us, that he's able to hold. All our imperfections, all of our resources. Remember, the disciples didn't have very much to offer Jesus on their own. 
neither do we really. But Jesus desires us to, to transfer our lives to the Lordship into His hands. It's not about what we offer, it is about who we are offering it to. So the key, key question is not how much have I got or how big is what I've got or, or is not even what do I have. The key question is, does God get to have it all? Does he have my plans? Does he have my activities? Have I transferred all that to him? Have those people, relationships, situations been transferred by faith to the lordship of Jesus so that he can transport as he intended it to be? It leads us to the last part of our our passage this morning, verses 39 through 44. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of fifties and hundreds. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving to the disciples set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. Well, that's, a, that's an undertaking in America like itself, isn't it? 10,000 people can be satisfied with their meal? And they picked up the 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and all the fish, and there were 5,000 men who ate. Now think about this scene and what picture is going on. Can you imagine the disciples looking at each other? Like, dude, I don't know how, where it's coming from either. Where is he getting all this fish? Where is this bread coming from? The people sitting on the ground. Where'd this come from? How many are you feeding? All of us? It's a great picture. And can you imagine... Can you imagine this little boy's face? Like his mom sent him out with some bread, and he maybe went fishing and caught some fish. This little boy's face just has to be filled with wonder. I can imagine if he'll stay in age, he would be taking selfies with Jesus and the bread and all the people. Instagram would be blowing up, Facebook, hashtag fish sandwiches for days. I mean, I don't know what... Just think about how this little boy, what story he had to tell his mama when he got home. Mama, you're not going to believe this. And you know, we have a story to tell too. Look what Jesus did with my lunch, with my life, with my limited resources. Look what God's done. They all ate and were satisfied. There was more than enough. Jesus kept giving to the disciples to give to the people. I think about this story. I've read it since I was a kid, and I always ask myself, couldn't Jesus have just snapped his fingers and had like fish and chips in front of everybody at one time? Sure he could. So why did he give it to the disciples to give to the people? I think there's a great principle there. He gave it to them to increase their faith and that they could participate in the gospel ministry. God is pleased to use you and me to accomplish his work. I was talking to a friend the other day about how much God loves us, how much we've been given, which includes his thoughts towards us, his attention towards us his desire for us to participate with him 
God gives us his thoughts. He gives us a song that he sings over us. He is enamored and awestruck by us, not because of us, but because of him, because it is for us that he died. And as I was talking to my friend, he made this comment. Somebody this morning is standing in awe and wonder at the Grand Canyon, just marveling at the vast and magnificent beauty. And all the while, God looks at us with so much more because it is for us that he died. God marvels at us, not because of what we have to offer, but what he wants to do in and through us. And he calls us his beloved. St. Augustine said this, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, and at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without ever wondering. Meaning that they forget that they are the beloved of God. St. Augustine went on to say this, Why then do you search for what you've been given? And why do you strive for what you've already had? Why would we search anywhere else or strive when God has already given it to us through our relationship with Jesus? I want to close with this. Jesus asked his disciples while sitting on a hillside with thousands in front of them that were hungry like a sheep without a shepherd, how many loaves do you have? Then he gave this command, go look. I believe that's our command this morning, to ask ourselves, God, all that I have, what is it that you've given me to be given to other people? We too have thousands in front of us that are hungry for the truth of Jesus. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So it leads to ask us this, will you search your heart and mind before the Lord and commit to him those areas he reveals to you that you may be holding on to? What is it that's in your hand that you need to transfer to the hands of Jesus? It could be your past. It could be the way you see yourselves is not enough. You don't have the resources. You don't have, you don't have, you don't have. Take that mindset and give it to Jesus. What is it that I'm holding on to? Is it a relationship, an attitude, a fear, a situation? Transfer it to the Lord so he can transform it. And for those of you who are here this morning and have never placed your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you that this story could be yours. That you take everything you know about yourself and transfer it to the Lordship of Jesus. And he'll transform you. As he did with the bread. Remember, God takes what you've been given, no matter how small it may seem to you, and multiplies it to create miracles for others. Jesus chooses us. He breaks us. He blesses us. And he gives us to the world to feed them. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would impress upon the hearts of the people here. That you will take us just as we are with all our faults, with all our sin, with all our doubts and fears. With our limited time, with our limited talents, 
And just like the bread, you will use us, you'll break us so that we can be given out for many. So God, we, we trust your supernatural work in our lives and we trust you with the results of it. In Jesus' name, amen.